On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 115th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, brought to you by me, your host, the Wolf Mac B from Amsterdam. Not London anymore. I have moved. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson, my old friend. And we hope that you listened to last week's show on U2's War, which is soon celebrating its 40th anniversary. Big hits like New Year's Day, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Two Hearts. Great album. It's the one that really set them up for the mega superstardom, world-conquering band that they would become. And a little help thanks to MTV for that Sunday, Bloody Sunday live at Red Rocks. Really kind of helped catapult them into the stratosphere. So we hope that you listen to that. This week, we're going down the heavy metal route. And again, as we always do on this show, we talk about bands. Sometimes bands make it big in the U.S., but they don't make it big in the U.K. Sometimes they make it big in the U.K., but they don't make it big in the U.S. for whatever reason. And this is kind of the story of a band that made it big in the U.S. for a while, basically on the back of one song that was from a band that was really big in the U.K., but didn't really make it big in the U.S., I'm talking about Quiet Riot. In 1983, they put out their album Metal Health, which had the single Come On, Feel the Noise on it. It was a big hit. It was a top 10 hit. And it propelled the album to number one. The first ever heavy metal album that went to the number one on the Billboard chart. But Come On, Feel the Noise was originally a Slade song. That was a huge hit all around the world, except America, certainly big in the UK and in Europe in 1973. For whatever reason, Slade did not hit it huge in America, but they were really big, and the lead singer, Nottie Holder, is kind of an icon of that glam era. You know, the big top hat with the mirrors on it. He's kind of a weird-looking dude, but he's an obvious entertainer. He was obviously having fun. And because Quiet Riot hadn't had much success, it was actually their third album. Their first two were made in the 70s and released only in Japan. They couldn't even really get American record distribution at that point. But they reformed with a new unit after Randy Rhodes had departed and gone to Ozzy Osbourne. And they made the Metal Health album, which included the Come On, Feel the Noise single. A song the band really didn't have any interest in doing, but at the end of the day, they did it awfully well. And it helped them sell over 6 million copies of Metal Health in the U.S. I think about 10 million worldwide. But that's the real highlight on the album, okay? There's some great riffs on there. There's some great musicianship. Frankie Benali is a fantastic drummer, and he laid down some heavy beats. Rudy Sarzo is a great bass player. He's been in Ozzy Osbourne's band. He's been with Whitesnake. He's also a heck of a good guy. Carlos Cavazzo is a really impressive guitar player who maybe didn't even know how good he was. But it's got to be tough when you're kind of filling in the footsteps of Randy Rhodes. The most interesting part of the band is their lead singer, Kevin Dubrow, who certainly knew how to be an entertainer, knew how to work the Sunset Strip. But was he a great singer? Did he write good lyrics? 
Well, we're going to talk about all that here as we get into the show. But first up, we have a little bit of business to talk about. As usual, we like to give shout-outs to Pantheon Podcasts, of which we are a proud member, about a hundred different podcasts out there of all genres. There's something for everybody. And we like to give shout-outs to the folks who we've had on our show, or perhaps we've been on theirs, like Christy Alexander Hallberg of Rock is Lit, like Jay Scott at The Hook Rocks, like Paul Stevenson at Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks, like the CEO, Christian Swain and Rock and Roll Archaeology, like Martin Popoff on History in Five Songs, and like the Kiss Kings themselves, Tom and Zeus of the great Shout It Out Loudcast. And we want you to remember that we are sponsored by RareVinyl.com, which is a killer, killer sponsor for a classic rock podcast, because they've got over 250,000 things in stock, folks. I'm talking records, LPs, CDs, singles, DVDs, posters, tour books, ticket stubs, all sorts of amazing artifacts uh, and rock history available in their warehouses in the UK, but they ship all over the world. They have a five-star rate, and they're wonderful people. And so if you're looking for something cool, you're looking for a first print, or you're looking for something in mint condition, go to rarevinyl.com or eil.com, use the code podcast. It'll save you 10%, maybe give you the opportunity to buy a little something extra, or at least knock off the shipping costs, especially if you've got to ship to America. So please, go check out rarevinyl.com, use code PODCAST, save yourself that 10%. Back to Quiet Riot now. Yeah, in 1983, I was 10. Parents were worried about kids in the suburbs listening to heavy metal, that it was satanic or evil or something like that, and I don't think my mom was any different. But you have to understand the appeal of a come on, feel the noise, the video, the look of the band, the sound of the guitar. It was huge, and it shot them to the top. I just don't think Quiet Riot, underneath all that, had what it took to become a really big-time band. Remember in 1983, uh, Metallica's first album is coming out, right? Slayer and Anthrax are not so far behind. So uh, metal is going to be changing. This is kind of the end of an era. It's kind of the end of a glossy sunset strip kind of thing, although... In the late 80s, you could say all those bands were kind of, the hair metal bands, they were all kind of that Sunset Strip era. Yeah, but they could play a little bit differently, and their lyrics were a little bit more grown up, let's just say. All I know is it was fun to talk to Jackson about this one. It was fun to revisit it, so let's go ahead and dive in for you here. We're listening to the first number one heavy metal album in the history of the Billboard chart, and that's Quiet Riot's Metal Health, right here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Because before we get into the business hand though, Jackson, I was, there's, it seems like there's been a lot going on in music news. There's like there's been some really super iconic people like Jeff Beck and David Crosby dying. Mm-hmm. Lots of people trying to gear up for a big summer tours and, you know, they're announcing different festivals and lineups and stuff like that. But i tell you some one positive thing out of the news in rock and roll music that I saw was that John Fogarty finally got the rights to his songs back from his days back in, in CCR. And it's been like a 50-year fight where Saul Zantz, who had owned the record company, but it was buddies with John's brother, took all his songs. I mean, I'm sure they signed them over to him when they didn't know what they were doing, but he was suing him for the longest time to get his songs back, couldn't do it. And then finally, he's like, I got all my songs back and I couldn't be happier. And like that, in this day and age where all the artists are selling their songs, like fine, take them make a lot of money off of them, do what you want, just give me a bunch of money and I'm done. He's like, I want my songs back. And he finally, after five decades, finally got them back. That was good news. Yeah, it, that's the, when you talk about like, what's the worst story in all of like music publishing, music history, it's gotta be John Fogarty. He got just railroaded. I Screwed. guess, I mean, I guess everything was legal. I guess he signed something that he really didn't know what he was doing. And the the people that had it deal, he said he went to a, because a, um, you mentioned his brother was involved with the with the guy who owned it. He went yeah. to like some kind of birthday party or something. And the guy threw his brother and the guy was like, yeah, you really got screwed on this. But that, what are you going to do? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's a legal thing. It, I think at some point in time, he actually, he had part of it, but he signed all of it over to the dude because he would have to make like 50 more records or something to, right. to satisfy the, the contract. And he was like, I can't do this anymore. So he got out of it. The craziest thing, though, was he got sued by that guy right. for, I think it was uh, Old Man Down the Road. And they said it was just like Run Through the Jungle. And the judge said, well, you can't rip yourself off. So there is no, you wrote both of those songs. You don't own them both, but you wrote them both. So it was just a long, just really nasty battle. So yeah, to see that he got all of that back, because he wrote all of that himself. There wasn't like any kind of co-writing credit. Like that was his deal. So, and I know for, he said something too about how like his wife now, Mm -hmm. I think really turned him around. I think he was really, really angry for a lot of years, like really bitter about the whole thing. As you would imagine. Yeah, correct. She got him to to kind of see, hey, you know, if you take all of that out, you've really had kind of a great life. You had a great solo career. People still love you. But yeah, to see that he got it back now, it re- that really is w- how it should have been all along. And you know, it's not that uncommon of a story that someone got screwed out of their song. So they signed mm-hmm. something and they didn't really know what they were signing. And, right. you know. Tom Petty's like, well, I thought it was for music books. I'm like, fine, I don't need the money from song books. I don't think that that's going to sell that many anyway, you know. And <laughs> Kansas famously signed with 
Clive Davis, and he's like, yeah, I made all my money off publishing. And one goes, he turns to the other and goes, what is publishing, right? Like, they don't even know what it is. The Stones don't worry got about it. ripped off by Alan Klein all those years ago. I mean, look, a lot of people don't own their stuff or never did or signed something where they didn't realize what they were signing. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad. But he was kind of the public face of it. You're right. And the thing in the 80s where he was basically being sued for ripping off himself by Saul and, you know, had to go to court and prove how he wrote them differently and stuff like that. It's just such ridiculous drama. And the other thing is, go listen to Creedence Clearwater's songs. You can't do that for 20, 30 minutes without a smile on your face. These are right. happy, upbeat, yeah. rock and roll songs that sold, I don't know, 120 million copies or something crazy like that back in the late 60s, early 70s. Just, they were just huge. And I'm just, I'm just glad that he got it. I hope he does it now, just keel over. Like, Because sometimes when you've got a fight on your hands and you fight, 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 and then finally win or lose, when it's over, some of that yeah. fight goes out of your system. <laughs> and, but I hope that it means he does a summer tour and he goes out there and enjoys it and everybody enjoys it because he, he, he makes fun rock and roll. And now that he owns it again and will get paid for playing his own songs again, I just think that's great. See, I wonder now too. Do you think he'll he'll go back and re-release a whole bunch of this stuff, clean it up? I don't know. Just to, I, don't know. I mean, to try and try and. I mean, because you want to think of you don't you want to think about positive, you know, moving forward, but you don't want to think about all the money you you left on the table all those years. So who knows? But yeah, definitely back to playing it live, and I don't know, maybe put out a live record. Who knows? I don't know. I, I saw him live though in the last ten years, and I'm like. This is fun. This is yeah. a blast. Like, you know, you go for the night. Sometimes it depends on the bands. You know, if it's a heavy band, you want to hear, you know, you want to hear the stuff that, that you grew up with and the, you want to hear it note for note. And like, it's just loose and fun, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, you know, every song he plays, even his solo stuff that maybe wasn't quite as popular, you know, every single song and yeah. they're happy for the most part. So I, I'm just happy for him. I, that's just a win for the good guys right there. And I would listen to his albums back and forth. Okay, but that brings us to today's record, Jackson. All right. Now, when we noticed that Quiet Riot's mental health was turning 40, mm-hmm. soon here, early in 1983, I'm like, okay, well, we've, we've got to review that. That's huge. It's the first ever heavy metal record that went to number one on the U.S. Come on, Feel the Noise was a huge, huge hit in the U.S. And Quiet Riot has a little bit of an interesting history pre-mental health and mm-hmm. a little bit post-mental health. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be a fun show, and I can't wait because summer of 83, man, that's when I was totally into MTV and the police run, Duran Duran and Men at Work and Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be so much fun to go back and listen to this record. And I listen to the record, I'm like, how the fuck did this get to number one? I mean, I, had, I understand Come On, Feel the Noise was a big hit and a big cover, but the rest of the record, God Damn, it's amazing there was ever another heavy metal record that went to number one after this, man. Are you kidding me? What did you think when you listened to it again? Well, okay. So it, it kind of boils down to they can't all be the White Album, right? <laughs> so yeah. if if you go into this thinking this is going to be something prolific, it's really not. But for a straight-ahead rock and roll record, something that you put on and just kind of, you know, I'm trying to think of who would have bought this in 83, like the, you know, the kid that owned the Camaro and was in high school and was just going to rock out. It's really not, it's not, it's nothing fantastic. It's not going to change the world, but it's pretty straight ahead. And it definitely opened the door for everything that would come after that. All the the hair metal, all the Sunset Strip bands, 
this was the roadmap to that. And for a rock record, it's actually, it's not bad. It's not yeah. bad. As long as you don't, as long as your expectations aren't too high. But, but see, that's, that's the thing. You know, when you mm-hmm. see first ever heavy metal to hit number one, not a Black Sabbath record, not an Iron Maiden record, mm-hmm. although they hadn't put out too many at this point, not a Judas Priest record, and then whoever else they may call heavy metal, you know, did Deep Purple ever make it at number one? You know, did they call Led Zeppelin heavy metal? Probably not. You know, did Aerosmith, you know, not make it, you know, whatever. I get it. And the charts were manipulated and the people who run Billboard are like, no, heavy metal doesn't really sell that much, right? Mm-hmm. It, it couldn't be number one. But six million in 1983, we just did a, a, a show on Journey's Frontiers that sold six yeah. million in the US in 1983. So it sold about the same amount in the same year. But that album is extraordinary. Could have sold 12 or 15 million copies. This one. I'm shocked that it sold 6 million in the U.S. And about 10 million <laughs> worldwide. I mean, I get it. The hit single was huge, right? Mm-hmm. Really big. But it's a cover, and it has a history of its own that we have to get into. And, right. and I get it. MTV really helped push it over. And on their heels, hey, here comes Def Leppard. Maybe not a heavy metal band, but in the genre, right? I mean, it, you know, a hard rock band with the long hair and the twin guitar attack. They're coming up here pretty soon. I just, given how well it sold, it's just, it's just surprising to me. It, it <laughs> so really you're saying is. after the first two tracks, it falls off pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's only one, one song that isn't bad to me. I, I, I mean, it wow. isn't bad. Like these songs are bad, you know. And, and Dubrow can't sing for shit. He's either screaming or he's standing there like a sucker, you know. Yeah, with his hairline just receding by the minute. I mean, he he wore a wig on stage in the late '80s and early '90s. I mean, he you know he, I thought he grew all that hair back. Yeah, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. those were wigs you know, that changed he, every two minutes. Believe it or not, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, like, and that's not cool. I mean, at least shave it like Rob Halford. You know, don't mm-hmm. wear a, an obvious wig. But I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say because I have such gorgeous hair covering up my own <laughs> male pattern baldness in the back. Uh, which we didn't think I was going to have, but apparently I do. <laughs> yeah, the the day I show up here and you're wearing a Louis the Fourteenth wig, <laughs> I think I might have to go. Okay, yeah, it's time for me to do my own podcast now, right. Blackie. We, uh, we have definitely come off the rails at that point. Appreciate in time. it. All right, so all right, before we just start to rip into this, we we got to do some history and kind of say, you know, how did the band get to this point in early 1983? that they released this mental health record and had this big hit, Come On, Feel the Noise. Okay. So the, the first thing that I, that was interesting to me is that this was this was the follow-up basically to Quiet Riot 2, right? right. With right. Randy Rhodes. Correct. But that came out in 1978. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to, was there like, a, I mean, I understand they had a big lineup change, pretty much everybody except for Kevin Dubrow. Was there, was he, you know, in the in some kind of legal trouble or what was the deal? Why was there such a big gap in between 78 and 83? Yeah, so so here's the way I understand it. So in, and they basically, they formed a band like 73 or something like that. You know, maybe mm-hmm. had some different names. I think Little Women was a name for a while or something like that. But but Randy and, and Dubrow had formed the band and they were gigging around L.A. And I guess they kind of started up kind of a friendly relationship or also like frenemy kind of relationship with Van Halen because they were 
kind of coming up the same way mm-hmm. at the same time, playing the same place, playing the whiskey, playing the Starwood, playing, you know, whatever. In fact, Rudy Sarzo, who was from uh, place born in Cuba, when he first went to L.A. in the 70s, he was trying to get into a Van Halen show at the whiskey. It was sold out, so he couldn't get in. So he ended up going to Starwood to catch Quiet Riot, and he met <laughs> Dubrow after the show, and they kind of struck up a friendship. Then he moved to, to New York, Rudy did, for a little while, and then when they had problems with their um, bass player, Kelly Garney. Kelly Garney was their bass player. And so they kind of kicked Kelly out of the band and they put Rudy in the band. And he's on the cover of Quiet Riot 2, the second album, even though I don't think he plays on the album at all. It's all Mm -hmm. Kelly Garney. But... (laughs) Kelly Garney had a problem with Dubrow. All right, so, but we'll come to that. So what's really odd to me is that although Van Halen ended up doing pretty well and getting a record contract, and it went gold pretty quickly. Of course, now it's diamond selling, but it became diamond because over the years, more people would discover Van Halen and be like, well, you really got to go hear Eruption. You really got to hear, you know, the first album. And, and then so I think it did fine the first, but it didn't sell 10 million copies in like 1978, right? Right. And because Deep Purple had broken up after their many lineup changes, and Black Sabbath was getting rid of Ozzy, and even Led Zeppelin wasn't really delivering that much anymore, and, and then Into the Outdoor Beat, not really a hard rock record. A lot of people said heavy metal is dead. And though Quiet Riot was killing it on the Sunset Strip, they couldn't get an American record contract. So their first two albums, which I think were 77 and 78, were only released in Japan. And honestly, you can't get it on CD. It still hasn't really officially been released in the U.S. And maybe it's some kind of special product if you can get them both together on a CD, but they've never released it in the U.S. So So that's... It's interesting because I think because Slick Black Cadillac is on Metal Health, but it's also on Quiet Riot too. So I said, well, let me go back and listen to the Quiet Riot too. Could not find it. it was there was some. It wasn't on Apple Music. It wasn't on Spotify. It wasn't anywhere except somebody had a bootleg on YouTube. On YouTube, so, okay, right. yeah. So that makes sense that you just can't find this record Ooh. anywhere that's legitimate in the United States. Right. Exactly. You know. So. So you can use stuff that you've already recorded because nobody in this country, or in, in our home country where you are, can get their hands on it. So that's fine. But the fact of the matter is they've got this future guitar god, Randy Rhodes, who's still kind of finding his way. And if you listen to that record, there's a few flourishes of what will become, what you'll hear on Blizzard of Oz and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's not like, this is obvious, he's the next big thing. It's, it's just right. not like that, you know. And the fact of the matter is Kelly Garney couldn't stand Kevin Dubrow. Dubrow has this personality that's very confrontational, it's very loud, it's very in your face, and he's pissed off a lot of people over the years. And Kelly Garney apparently one night decided, I got a gun, I'm going to go down to the studio and I'm going to fucking shoot Kevin Dubrow. I'm a murder son of a bitch, right? All right. He has too much to drink, he gets a DUI, gets arrested on the way. (laughs) And then after that he kind of cools off and he decides not to murder. Kevin Dubrow, and they bring in Rudy to play on the album, um, or to, to do the tour. He did not play on the album. The album's already made. He's on the cover, but he is not on the album. And of course, it doesn't really go anywhere because it's not released in this country. But most of the most of the songs are co-written by Kevin Dubrow and Randy Rhodes. Like they're they're the writing team. Then Randy goes to join. Ozzy Osbourne's band, because mm-hmm. Ozzy's free from Black Sabbath, so he goes over there, obviously making history in, Wizard of Oz, in Blizzard of Oz. Eventually, Rudy goes too. So that's half their band, and I think Dubrow tried to keep it going for a while. They said, nah, I'll stop it, and I'll just do I'll, call, I'll do a band called Dubrow, since I'm a veteran of the strip. I know how to 
you know, get this stuff done. I know how to strut around. I know how to write some songs. We're going to try to do bro. And then it, for a couple of years, it just, it just doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't really make it. So he gets in touch with Randy, who was having success with Ozzy, and says, you know, do you mind if I kind of reanimate the old Quiet Riot moniker for a new band that you're not in? And I, I guess Randy gave him his blessing, which is cool. It sounds like something Randy would do. Mm-hmm. And eventually, he got uh, Rudy back in the band. And I think a big, big addition uh, to the band was Frankie Benali uh, on the drums. Frankie is a big-time hard rock, heavy metal drummer. He's done a ton of session work over the years. He's really been kind of the guy who kept the Quiet Riot name alive. Like He left at the end of the 80s when everybody else did. And then he was in Wasp for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I mean, if, if you hear anything about Blackie Lawless or Wasp, you know he wasn't like a fair partner in that. You know, he, he was oh, always right. just getting paid, right? Black, yeah. Blackie's the corporation and everybody else just gets paid, right? So eventually he put Quiet Riot kind of back together the heyday in the late 90s through the early 2000s. And then eventually Kevin died. But, but, but Frankie kept it going. He's a, he was a great guy, Frankie, from by all accounts. So now they've got a killer rhythm section. They pull in Carlos Cavazzo, who's kind of a shredder. And, mm-hmm. you know, look, in L.A., because of what Randy Rhodes did on Blizzard of Oz, because of what Eddie Van Halen was doing on the first Van Halen album, and then after that, you had to have that tapping. You had to have that shred to be part of that. And, and he fit it, right? So mm-hmm. suddenly they've got a pretty hot L.A. kind of band. And they got signed finally to a major label, and and they made Mental Health. Okay, so that makes sense then with where the gap was. And that actually is pretty cool that Randy would say, hey, go ahead and use it. Although, at that point in time, he was fairly successful with Ozzy. So, yeah, go ahead and do it. Basically, remember that beat-up Datsun we used to drive in high school? You mind if I take it for a spin? He's like, yeah, don't don't worry, dude. I got somebody driving me around the still there. Exactly. This is Sunny Hollywood Poonie, and you are listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Why? Somebody has to. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
So because of MTV, they know they're going to have to make some videos and use those as ways to promote the album. And you can't underestimate the value of MTV to Quiet Riot, to Def Leppard in this country, in, in, well, in our country. I mean, that's this whole episode, I feel, is going to have a lot of back and forth with people who are big in the U.S. but not in the U.K., or big in the U.K. but not in the U.S. Mm. This is kind of the epitome show of that, right? Because Quiet Riot was big, at least in 1983, in the United States. It played the Us Festival and, you know, uh, opened for Black Sabbath on their Born Again tour, featuring Ian Gillen on lead vocals there. And it basically had the classic Sabbath lineup minus Ozzy, because Bill Ward was back in the band after leaving for Mob Rules. Mm -hmm. But then the Us Festival was huge because, you know, Ozzy was there and Priest was there. And so some big hard rock bands were there. It's 100,000, 200,000 people, whatever. So... uh, 1983 was a huge year for them. They worked with a guy named Spencer Proffer, and that's not his real name. He has some kind of very East European-sounding name. He's from mm-hmm. Germany. But he's <laughs> he's worked with a lot of people over the years, produced a lot of records, produced a lot of films and film scores and stuff like that. So it, it does have a fairly slick 80s production value to it and like when you compare slick black cadillac on this record to slick back cadillac on qr2 (laughs) it's i mean the song's not that different but the production is totally different yeah indeed the intro's a little weird yeah you can tell that that was an easy extra track to pick up like you said nobody's heard of this in the united states so you might as well pull it out clean it up and then get it for another single which i think they did they release that as a single i don't know i guess they they I don't think they did, but they that's definitely played enough to yeah. be, I guess, considered a single. It, it, it's classic. I mean, and they, they play it to this day. You know, I mean, they, they're never going to not play that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cover. The iconic cover of the dude in the leather jacket. It's supposed to be a straight jacket. I think it's really just a leather jacket kind of turned around with the stuff, <laughs> the, the arms tied behind his back. <laughs> and then the mask. Yeah. That's, I don't know if it's duct tape or tinfoil or a little bit of the both it kind of became their logo kind of like eddie is to iron maiden this was obviously you see this like oh that's quite right album if Mm -hmm. you look at the next album critical condition and the qr3 after that that features this mask this iron yet duct tape mask (laughs) on the guy so it looks like he's he's in an insane asylum he's in a you know padded cell with the you know orderly pants on the black leather jacket straight jacket and then this odd mask with you know one eye like going mm, like i need help kind of thing yeah. mental health versus mental health see it's a play on words oh i see very yeah. clever yeah no i remember when this i remember when it came out i remember it, yeah the the image is striking mm-hmm. and i'm sure people had problems with that that we would We'll get into that a little bit later as far as the what the PMRC, I'm sure, thought of what was going on here. But yeah, right. it, it and it definitely, it was one, I think, where metalhead kids wanted that poster up on the wall, too, because it looked cool. You know, it, it, it does look kind of cool. I got to say, it's iconic. Now, I kind of remember at the time, I was still pretty young. I was like 10 when this was hitting the charts. And, you know, listen to Michael Jackson, listen to the work, <laughs> stuff like that. So, although I love Come On, Feel the Noise... I seem to remember, you know, there may have been a story, maybe on like Entertainment Tonight or even the Nightly News, who knows, talk about heavy metal and what it does to kids. And here's Quiet Riot causing problems. And I remember my mom saying, like, you don't like that stuff. Do you? I'm like, oh, no, mommy, I don't like that. I'm like, 
but I kind of do. <laughs> now I'm going to go to my room and be quiet for a little while. And hopefully <laughs> it comes on the radio. Because, yeah, because it was this one and it was Stay Hungry from Twisted Sister Twisted with Sister. D. Snyder on the front. Mm-hmm. It just looked horrendous with that giant bone that he had. And, right. yeah, the two of these were pretty synonymous with just the images being something that, yeah, parents were like, well, you, I don't even want to see this anywhere near you. You're like, yes, of course. I, I would never do that. But then, like, you can come on the radio, like, yeah, come on. <laughs> That's really cool. All right. So let's start. Let's go track by track, as we always do. Now, most, I don't know, I shouldn't say most all, Dubrow writes or co-writes on almost every song except Battle Axe. We'll get to that. And, of course, Come On, Feel the Noise, which was a cover. Mm-hmm. Metal Health starts it off, written by Kevin Dubrow, Carlos Cavazzo, and Frankie Benali. Mm-hmm. Second mm-hmm. single off the record, not the first. And I find it very accessible. You know, it's got great big heavy rips, ripping guitar, but it's not insane. But the lyrics are ridiculous. They're ridiculous. I mean, this isn't made for teenagers. This is made for dumb teenagers, you know? <laughs> uh, and I remember singing along to it. Thinking, yeah, I'm rocking along. And now I look at the lyrics now. I'm like, this is the dumbest. This is... But it... It's moronic. It's, it's not just sophomoric. It's moronic. But I think it's it's right down the middle for what they were trying to do. There is... You're right. There's nothing going on here. It's got that killer intro with Frankie, you know, playing the drums. You know exactly what it is. And it's... It's for people to, yeah, you're driving in your car and you're, you're, you're yelling, bang your head. Right. Metal health will drive you mad. And especially on these first two, the choruses almost seem like they're set up for the crowd to sing it back to them. Absolutely. Yes. So, I mean, they, I think they knew what they were doing on this one, but you're right. When you, when you listen to what he's actually saying, I've got a mouth like an alligator. I mean, it's just, it's not real deep, but I I really want to be. Yeah. Overrated. Thank you. And congratulations. You are. I'm not a loser and I ain't no weeper. Oh, God. Did it take you five minutes? Did it take you six? I mean, it's, you know, you could have written this anywhere. I don't know. And the end solo was cool. It has a lot of tapping, you know, a la Eddie Van Halen and maybe a little bit of Randy Rhodes in there. The video is important. You know, the video's. The guy in the padded room with the right. mask on, yeah. basically the cover. He escapes, gets out, and you see Dubrow basically wearing what he was wearing, throw the mask out into the crowd like, it was me, I was the in the insane <laughs> asylum. I mean, look, I, I remember it fondly, and bang your head. It's right, a fun correct. thing to scream yes. in concert, metal health will drive you mad. It's iconic. It, you're not trying to win a Pulitzer Prize with the lyrics, I get it. I did not know that it was carved out of a song called No More Booze, written by Carlos Cavazzo when he was in his previous band, Snow. Huh. Okay. So he reworked the riff or whatever. And, you know, Kevin put his, changed the lyrics to his, his own. So I didn't know that before doing research for the show. So can we talk about Carlos for a minute here? Yeah, I love Carlos. I saw, 
I saw him you know, in an interview with when he was playing with Rat. Mm-hmm. It was him and Martini, and they were talking about the songs, and then they would play the songs. And you know, he was Cavasso was playing the the Robin Crosby rhythm part. Okay. It looked like he could have been doing anything else and playing that. It looked like it was really, really, really easy for him. I think he's a lot better than what he's doing here. I think he's fitting himself into these songs. That's just my that's just my feeling on this. He plays exactly what they need on like every one of these songs. But it sounds and especially on that we'll get to Battle Axe later, but it sounds like he could do he's basically holding himself back is what I think on this record. You may be right about that, Jackson. I it does look like he's he's effortless, and and then if he's really showing off, I'm like, how do you play that well when you're just fop, bobbing around like that? Why don't you stand yeah. still and you can really show us what you're doing? And yeah, I don't know. It's it's like he's not even. I wouldn't say it's not that he's not trying. It's I don't know. Maybe he was intimidated. Like I'm filling in. I'm taking the spot once held by Randy Rhodes, so I you know yeah. I got to be respectful and do it right. I, I don't know, but he. It's I mean, just, I I think he's underrated. Is a guitar yeah. player, but that's because Carlos Cavazo, he was a quiet right. Oh, yeah, they had come on Feel the Noise and Mental Health, and that's about it. you know. And then he did Robin Crosby's parts in Rat, and that's kind of what he's famous for. Right. It just seems to me if he could, if if 10 is the limit of what he can play, this is probably like a four or five. Like he's yeah. really just trying to, I'd like to see him really go, really go nuts. But in I've seen a couple of interviews that he's done just with the rat one but also talking about quiet riot he just seems like a really chill dude like a guy who loves loves playing the guitar like more of like a session guy like if you need me to whatever you need me to play i can play you want to play fast no problem slow acoustic you know chords no problem it just it seems like he does a really good job on this of guiding the song along and not doing too much yeah no that's that's true i think you're right and I did meet Carlos once at the Whiskey A Go Go. Oh, that's right. He was super nice. He, he couldn't have been nicer. He introduced me to his girlfriend. Well, I'm going to guess her occupation was dancer. <laughs> and she was really nice. And then he went over to the Rainbow to eat some food. And so I went over to the Rainbow too, but I didn't bother him anyway. But like I said, what was it like being on tour in the quiet? Right? And I was like, <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm a big fan. God bless you. Kind of thing. It went to 31 on the American charts. It was backed with mental health live so it's like they didn't even have a lot of b-sides laying around to go with it you know they you know but the video i saw was made for nineteen thousand dollar budget and basically it was made like some disney studio or whatever with a bunch of students as extras maybe paid okay. maybe unpaid also of course the single was cut by about a minute because that's what they do like oh you can't have a four and a half minute heavy metal song you better make it three and a half you know so that's just the record company messing with them but Enough about that. Let's get mm-hmm. on to track number mm-hmm. two, the big one, the reason we're still talking about this album 40 years later, and that's Come On, Feel the Noise. Now, curious. Yeah. Curious, curious song because this was giant, but then here you go back with your big on one on side A, but not on side B. How right. is Slade not a bigger band in the United States? In the U.S., yeah, I know. Yeah. And anytime that happens, I always blame the record company. I blame the A&R guy. Like somebody fumbled it. They just didn't promote them. They didn't tour them or they didn't tour mm-hmm. them with the right people or something. Didn't get them on TV, whatever it was. Now, I know they're glammy and, and glam hit big in America like in New York and LA. But in the middle, everyone's like, why are they dressed like girls? You know, <laughs> why are they wearing high heels? Why is one a spaceman and the other looks like a tartan moron? You know, I just don't think it hit with the home, the homeland. And, you know, yeah, like the 
Bowie's big in New York and L.A. Was Bowie mm. really big in Oklahoma? I don't know about that, you know. And Mark Boland, T-Rex, huge, huge in the U.K. and Europe. Bang a gong. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know that one. Non-existent yeah. other than that in the U.S., mm. right? So I think it was a story of glam. Was Mop the Hoople big in America? No. Was was Sweet big? No. Something about the U.K., even though they're all buttoned up and prim and proper, they have a soft spot for boys who wear makeup and dress like girls. Even though homosexuality was illegal, you know, like, you can go to jail until, like, the late 60s. In the 70s, suddenly there are a lot of guys dressing up like girls. And I don't even think it was so much about being straight or gay. I think it was more, especially in in the UK, like you said, everybody is so buttoned up. And everybody mm-hmm. is so, you know, I get up at this time and I have my coffee and we go blah, blah, blah. And you have this chance to just express yourself a little more and especially you know with with rock and roll and yeah seeing these dudes who were just crazy like you think to yourself man i want to be once in my life i just want to be a little crazy i yeah. just i don't want to wear gray let's have a show you know it's, yeah. it's entertainment you know Correct. so let's let's do Correct. it you know and like the new york dolls were kind of a big thing eh, but not really much outside of new york i think they're bigger in the uk than they were in the u.s mm. yeah it did lead to kiss who we right. like a lot, but that's a little different because they weren't trying to look like girls. They, they were right. trying to look like superheroes kind of thing. Correct. But, but it, you know, Nottie was, Nottie Holder is a heck of an entertainer. He's, he's weird looking and yes. that works against you in the U S. Unfortunately for Slade, there was not the guy. Well, maybe, eh, no, not really. Any of the guys there that were like the heartthrob and that's, that's going to hurt you in the United States, but Nottie's yeah. got a hell of a voice on him. Yeah. You know, and he's, Having fun, you can tell he's an entertainer. Yeah. And he was on our buddy The Rock on Tours not mm-hmm. that long ago. In fact, when we interviewed them on episode 96, they were talking about how excited they were that they were going to get to talk to Naughty Holder, like, you know, not long after talking to us. Like, we, we don't even want to talk to you guys, but we can't wait to talk to Naughty. You know, that, that's <laughs> going to be awesome. You know, so yeah, Slade's version went to number one in the UK, number one in Ireland, top 10 all over Europe. Never heard number, of one time in the United States. Number 98. On the Billboard Top 100. Okay, so it just—I mean, it just didn't—it didn't hit, you know. And Jim Lee, who I guess was the Jim Lee was the, the bass player, and Nadia—they yeah. wrote it together. A huge hit for them. A non-album single. It was between albums. It was actually a non-album single, which I always find fascinating. And when he did that on like Top of the Pops or one of those British shows, he had a big top hat that had all these little mirrors on it, you know, so that when he would turn yeah. his head, the light would go everywhere. I heard Paul Stanley say that's exactly how I got the idea for my cracked Ibanez mirror oh, guitar. Oh, the Iceman. Yeah. Yes, was watching him on huh. TV. He's like, I want a guitar that looks like that, you know. Interesting. So, that's pretty cool. So huge hit for them in the UK, not at all in the US. And that's probably why Spencer Proffer goaded them into doing it. And they did not want to. And, <laughs> and Dubrow was, was like, we should write all the songs because he knew what publishing royalties mm-hmm. were and we, we should get all that no try this because you know you need something and it wasn't a hit here but you can make it a hit here and like nah this song sucks Naughty holder's voice doesn't align with kevin's it's different so they got together they huddled up and said okay here's what we're gonna do we're gonna play the song we're gonna play the song really badly and then we're gonna forget about the fucking song okay he's not gonna ask us to do it again <laughs> but frankie went in with those drums boom and he's got a little pop on that and Kevin's like what are you doing Frankie you're making it sound pretty good you know kind of thing
And so they did a killer version of it. And obviously, it's kind of like the rest is history because it went up to number well, five and, and blew this thing up the charts in the summer of 83. Yeah, I was going to say there's a little more of that story because apparently he – so you said Frankie goes in there and just kills it. And he comes out and Dubrow was like, what are you doing? I thought we were going to like sandbag this. Yeah, I know. And apparently Benali said to him, just sing it like shit. You know how to do that. And he walked <laughs> off. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm not going to play it bad. This is kind of my yeah. break, you know. Yeah, like, you want to sing it bad. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And a huge video, right? Yeah. There's the kid in his bedroom. He's on his bed and all of a sudden – the music starts coming out louder. And then all of a sudden, his stereo, which is right next to his hand, all of a sudden, it's eight feet tall. And he's trying yeah. to switch the dial. Oh, I can't do it. Meanwhile, the duct tape mask is you know hanging on his above his bed. Maybe he got it out of the mental health video. Who knows? But all of a sudden, he, boom, it's like he falls down. And then he's on stage next to the band. And they're all looking at him like, what the hell are you doing here, kid? And then they play the song <laughs> live, basically, on like a soundstage. There's some people around or whatever. To me, Carlos's solo on this is fantastic i put it mm. up there one of the greatest heavy metal certainly heavy metal pop solos of all time he's absolutely shredding and the thing is he's running back and forth during a thing i'm like dude just stand still let me see how you're doing that with your fingers it's, it's you're right it's like it's everless it's like i can do whatever i want with this thing you know and yeah. he kind of proves it on this song and and for all of the, if you listen to the rec, the rest of this record, Dubrow's voice does not work for everything, and we'll get into that in a minute. But for mm -hmm. this song, it's perfect, and it's just you never heard because even though, well, no, Metal Health would come next. So this was the this is basically the first time you ever heard him sing. That's right. He's got that crazy screaming delivery, exactly, and it it works perfectly for this. You know, just it, it, and the the drum intro, you know exactly what the song is. I know what it is. I turn it up as loud as it'll go and Absolutely. just listen to him scream at me. And the choruses, where they're all screaming along, mm -hmm. it just encourages you to do the same thing. You know, how many yeah. times have you been in your car and you're like, come on, <laughs> but if you turn the volume down, you're like, whoa, whoa, I'm singing that a little loud. I probably, <laughs> probably shouldn't be doing that, but it's just, it's infectious, you know, and killer, you know, I, I think yeah. it was, it was backed with run for cover, which is on the second side of the album. Did very well in the U.S., did well in Canada. It got to 45, I think, in the U.K., which, as our friend Neil will tell us, if you can't get in the top 40, then no one's going to know who you are because mm. you're not going to be on top of the pops or whatever. you know. So it, it didn't really help them. But also, Slade did re-release their own version of it in the U.K. in 1983. Okay. And remember how it only went to 98 in the U.S. in 1973? Mm -hmm. only went to 98 in the uk in 1983 because oh. you can't do it 10 years later you kind of got to do it 20 years later if they did it in 93 it probably would have done fine but you know i i don't know if they did it in reaction to quiet riots like okay well we don't want them upstaging us with our own song we'll we'll release it and show everybody what the goods are and then it didn't do as well i don't know that seems like a strange decision to me but they never had success in the u.s so Right. Maybe they were bitter about Quiet Riot having all this success on the back of their song. Although, you know, you're bitter until those checks start coming in. Well, that's right. Because let me tell you something. Quiet Riot made no money off Come On, Feel the Noise. Like, none. And, and Frankie even said it, I think, in the Behind the Music. It's like, we had a bad record contract. and But look, you know, when you're starving and someone offers you a plate of chicken wings, 
you take it. You're not thinking, right. oh, why don't I hold out for the buffet that's in the next room? You're like, yeah. no, I'll, I'll take the chicken wings, you know. And I'm sure they made some money off the songs they wrote on the album. It sold 10 million worldwide, but not on Come On, Feel the Noise. It was like Naughty and, uh, and Jim Lee got their publishing money for it. And then the record company took everything else and didn't give it to the band. So it may have been a huge hit, but financially, I don't think it helped them that much. Yeah, and that's got to be tough. That's got to be tough when you see, because you can't be that blind. You know this thing is selling. You know, hey, wait a minute. Everybody involved with this is making money except for me. That's going to be a huge problem. Yeah, and when you're kind of a one-hit wonder, and I'm sorry for huge Quiet Ride fans, but you know, this went to number five in the U.S., nothing else ever broke the top 20. So mm -hmm. that means you're a one-hit wonder, and if your one hit doesn't get you paid, <laughs> that kind of sucks. And the fact of the matter is, Frankie said that he went to London, they invited the guys to the show with a limo and everything, never heard back from them. He bumped into Jim like in the market or something like that and said, hey, you know, thanks for, you know, the song, thanks for writing a hell of a song and he went to shake his hand and the guy just walked away from him. So he's like, well, okay. okay. So I think it showed, yeah, they were a little bit bitter that they had made in their, you know, big with their own song, but mm -hmm. he still got paid for it. You know, I, I wouldn't be that bitter about it. And That's then they, me. yeah, and then they went ahead and did it again on the next record on Critical Condition. They did "Mama, We're All Crazy oh, Now," crazy. Yeah. which is which. I mean, that was a. I, I mean, wasn't close to what they did with "Come On, Feel the Noise," but I remember that coming out again. Sure. So I mean, obviously they weren't that. I guess I think they were trying to strike gold again. It was the but, biggest hit off Condition Critical, absolutely. Correct. It was. Yeah, yeah. You know, but look for another band that's absolutely enormous in the UK and just did fine in America. Oasis. Oasis did a killer version of Come On, Feel the Noise, man. It was originally part of the promotion single for uh, Don't Look Back at Anger. Okay. And I think there's a live version of it. They did it at Main Road, but I, I do believe there's a the studio version that was one of their many, many killer B-sides from over the years. That, But that was probably a bigger hit <laughs> and a B-side <laughs> than was Quiet Riot's version of it. <laughs> I, I just remember the video being huge. I remember it mm -hmm. being on the radio. I didn't realize they took like a minute and a half out of the single version versus the uh, the album version. But I mean, look, when I made my Adrenaline mix, my 1992 Adrenaline mix that I would put in my Walkman, because I still used to run 20 years ago, 30 years ago, for fun, for like exercise. Like, oh, I'll just go run for 45 minutes. Like, you think you're going to get me to do that now? Dinosaur could be chasing me. I'm like, nah, fuck it, just leave me, dude. I'm not running. That's um, been a good, it's been a good life. Just go yeah, yeah, I'm not running for anything. But that was definitely on there because you can't, it just pumps you up, man. It's it's just yeah. automatically, you're running faster. Absolutely. And and one that's designed, I mean, what was even pseudo live in the uh, video. I mean, just one you want to hear live, one you want to yell back the chorus to the band. You know, and then Rudy's playing his bass. He, he flips his hand over on the other side of it. You know, he, he he's just, he's fun visually. You know, he may not have written any of these songs, but he played on almost all of them. And um, mm -hmm. he, he played, he certainly played on this one. He did not play on Metal Health and he didn't play on Don't Want to Let You Go, which is the next one. Uh, Chuck Wright, who had been in the band for a while, but just wasn't a perfect fit and is a very talented bass player in his own right. He's played for a lot of people, done a lot of session work mm -hmm. over the years. And I believe he's, well, he, and he was back in Quiet Riot for a while over the last decade and a half. Now Rudy's back in the band in the current incarnation, which are, I guess they're touring on the 40th anniversary, but I mean, Dubrow is, is 
is not with us anymore. Frankie's not with us anymore. Carlos is doing something else. So he's the only like holdover yeah. from the heyday, you know, kind of thing. But hey, people want to see him and they want to do it. Let him go tour. All right. So those are the two big ones, Jackson. Now let's get to okay. the, rest the rest of the story. <laughs> All right. So you, you, have a, you kick it off hard. You take it up a notch for the second one. Third number's got to be a gear change. Mm-hmm. Don't want to let you go. Yes. Okay. I don't. This is an interesting song because it, yeah, it's very different. It's, it doesn't have the Frankie Benelli drums. It's got the no. chords at the beginning of it. Yep. I, this sounds like this should have been somebody else's song. Yeah. My big thing on this one is Dubrow does not fit into this. Like his vocal delivery is just wrong for the song. My notes say this doesn't suit Dubrow's voice. He's <laughs> not a crooner. He's a shouter. <laughs> That's what he does, you know. And and the production is very early '80s to me. Like mm-hmm. I I know exactly when they recorded this. Like I might know <laughs> the day. Like it was it November fifteenth, nineteen eighty two. I can tell. And uh, you know the guitar is a little tinny to me. And the solo is not super special. Mm-hmm. And they have a little keyboard on here. Not not a member of the band, but but credited on the album with some keyboard stuff. Is a guy named Pat. I think it's either Regan or Reagan. I'm not sure. But no, this. This is not a good Quiet Riot song. This mm-hmm. is not good for Kevin's voice. Mm-mm. It's very, very, very dated to me. It, it, yeah. you know, it, it couldn't have been made in 1984. It's so dated. Like it, it is. This is the only time this could come out. And it's to me, it's not great. Yeah, I uh, so so I've got this one sounds generic. Could have been any '80s band. Catchy but cheesy. Keyboards are not helping. So yeah, it it sounds like very of the time. And I it's love, just I love keyboards are not helping. <laughs> well, it's not helping it be anything other than like you said, 1982. Like it's just yeah, I, I don't. It, there's really nothing special about this. This would have been if you had somebody else in the band that could sing. Mm-hmm. This may have been a good other guy song yep and give de a uh arrest on this someone should have given it a rest that's mm-hmm. for sure uh but i mean you know i understand you need a gear changer after those two big ones correct and then you're coming in with fourth slick black cadillac which is a a big fist bump yes. song you know it's about cars yeah you know here we go right but that 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 song just doesn't fit now yeah slick back cadillac versus the 1978 QR2 version, it's not mm. that different. The opening is definitely different. Yeah. But the production is different. My notes on the production were, let's see, what is it? It's like the first one it was cheap late 70s production versus slick early 80s production. <laughs> Yeah. 
That's the difference between the two songs, really. And although I'm trying to give Randy, I'm going to like the Randy version better than the Carlos version, I can't say that I necessarily do because he doesn't really show a whole lot of flash that makes me think, oh, he's going to go do Blizzard of Oz soon. It's it's really, it's it's basically the same song. Right, and and I went back thinking that exact same thing. Well, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna hear the Randy solo on this on the uh, the '78 version. Here we go, and oh, that was it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and just for one moment, very quickly, mm-hmm. on the cover of Quiet Riot Two. Oh God, what on God's earth is he wearing? It's not even so much what he's wearing. Yeah, he's wearing a polka dot bow tie, and he was so skinny and little. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and maybe was it uh, some suspenders, you know, and no and shirt? Re- yeah. But but here, here's what's more <laughs> troubling to me, Jackson, is that they're in a locker room. And there's some great big football guys getting dressed around them. And then they're in their poncy little 70s outfits. And they're all scrawny. And there's these big, huge guys who don't seem to mind that they don't even notice that they're there. But it's like, but why are they there? Like, <laughs> What's the point of them being there? And it's not like, you know, there was a theme to it. Like, well, you know, this is called the locker room. This is called backstage or, you know, something. It's just called Quiet Riot 2. I'm like, it it didn't make any sense. I'm like, did it make sense in Japan because it was released there? Because it doesn't make sense to me 45 years later. Maybe. Yeah, there was a theme there somewhere that they all agreed to. But yeah, what that is, unfortunately, everybody in that... Everybody in that photo shoot or the people that you'd want to talk to are gone now. So it's yeah. lost to history. But yes, very interesting. Yeah. Are they are they getting are they going to play the halftime? Are they getting ready for the thing? Uh, ready for the yeah, game? Yeah. Are they just watching them change? What's going on there? Yeah, very strange. Yeah. Don't want to let you go. Carlos and Kevin wrote that together. But this is one that Randy wrote with Kevin. Uh, right. Back in the day, and obviously he reworked it and updated it a little bit here. In the in the '70s version, it kind of begins with a, a groove, kind of a funky yeah. thing, until it breaks into the to the big riff. Whereas this one, there's an acapella right acapella start to it with him singing, and then boom, here comes that big driving riff. It's a good rocker, uh, yeah. you know. Makes me feel like a king. Right. I only I need mean, one thing, and that's a slick black. <laughs> Pull over, right? Pull over right before he does the solo. It's it ends with honking and a very '80s wind out kind of a thing. It's a little long. It's kind of one of those because at the end, like, okay, let's take it up now. We're doing swing black. They would kind of keep doing that over and over again. You know, it was how long was it? It was four thirteen. God, it felt like it was five and a half minutes. (laughs) You know, they probably could have cut that one down a little bit, but Hey, look, you know, it's a fun song. It's a rocker. It's about Cadillacs and cars. And as far as this album goes, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely (laughs) third best on the record. Yes. Yes. And now the fifth song Mm -hmm. on the first side loves a bitch. Right. Now I understand that, uh, that's kind of a sentiment that we've all kind of felt from one time or another. And I mean, technically the song, the Stones had a song called bitch and, and the chorus was love. It's a bitch. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not 
unprecedented for for saying like that, but the execution is just kind of <laughs> poor, you know. And, and and it starts with Dubrow; he's moaning or screaming very slowly at yes. the beginning. He can't not do that. Loves a bitch, baby. This is not a good song. It's okay, but, but hold on a minute because it's the acoustic intro. Like when you hear that, that was the model for a lot of stuff that would come after it, include up to it, including Dawkins alone again. I'm like, mm, they use this thing as a, as a blueprint for a lot of eighties, kind of like the, your ballady cheesy song on there, the sentimental side, it would have been a lot better had, they taken out that beginning screaming part. Like, just let him play. Let him play the acoustic yeah. guitar for a minute. It's, oh, I have to come in right now. Okay, it's been like 13 seconds. Relax. Go sit in the corner. And I think that's that's probably Dubrow's Achilles heel, is he can't be quiet, and he can't be sitting in the corner. It had, look at me all the time. This is my show. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Yeah, he, he's he's a lot like David Lee Roth in, mm-hmm. in some respects. You know, he's got a big mouth. He can't wait to talk shit about everybody. Right. He He's more of an entertainer than an artist. Yeah. And... And he relies on some hooks and kind of old adages versus mm-hmm. coming up with something original. You know, loves a bitch. Everyone's heard that, right? Run for cover. Right. Everyone's heard that. You know, these, yeah. this is a song he wrote on his own. And I think I think the song sucks. And it, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of heavy, sure, but it, it really just kind of plods. It's it's yeah. not so much heavy as it as it kind of drags to me. And despite the fact, I do like what you're saying about the beginning, what Carlos is playing in the beginning. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Ronnie James Dio when he's doing the, you know, when he's got the acoustics like, we are coming home. Yeah. Like they go from the, that to the other, but no, it, and the solo's not good. I mean, this is just like end of the first side. Can we flip this, please? This is, <laughs> it's just, it's moronic. It's just not that good of a song. And I'm, I'm you know, Here's the thing. It was. It's funny because it, it it actually in late no in eighty three in November I think it was it replaced synchronicity at the top of the charts. Right. It's only there for a week, and then yeah. Lionel Richie's "Can't Slow Down" came and bumped it off. Well, I had synchronicity and "Can't Slow Down" on cassette. I didn't have this on cassette because, of course, my mom didn't want me to have it. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I didn't listen to this until I was older. Mm-hmm. really all the way through. I mean, I had friends who had it, but then we would usually listen to the first two songs and then right. we'd listen to something. Then we'd pop the tape out and put in something else, right? So I didn't realize how bad a lot of this was until later in life. But that's side one. And if you didn't like side one, you're not going to like side two, folks. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. Breathless. Mm-hmm. No, wait. Yes. Breathless starts off and it's a bit of a runner, right? Okay. You know, it's, it's better than the last. Of- Reminds you of who? Iron Maiden. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, this definitely sounds like they were trying to do something a little different. Even the guitar solo where he comes in sounds like he's trying to sound like Iron Maiden. This is, it's not a great song, but at this point in time, it's a nice change of pace on this record.
not that bad. No, I, I kind of like it. You know, you take my breath away. You leave me breathless. It, it's better, you know, on the course when they're all together. I think Carlos does better than he did on the last couple tracks, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I think Frankie's killing it on this one. I, I think he, I think maybe Carlos is trying to channel a little Randy Rhodes on this one a little bit, but not necessarily Randy from Quiet Riot, Randy from Blizzard. Correct, yeah. Not Which quite at the same level, but right. he's, he's trying, right. you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, Dubrow screaming at the start is gimmicky. I mean, it's yes. you know, it's it's like the song could be fine without you doing that, man. It's it, right. it's not a bad one. He and Carlos wrote this together as they did the next one, Run for Cover. Um, yeah, it's I've a good got, way I've to start a, the second side. Yeah, I've got a note on here. Dubrow has to scream at the beginning. Has to underline. I mean, it's just it was that one of the things where it was like, okay, we're going to go into. Okay, well, I need to start this thing. Okay, again, mm-hmm. come on. Can we not for just, well, I guess not. All right. Nope. Okay. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a highlight on side two. (laughs) Next is Run for Cover, which is the Mm B-side to Come on, Feel the Noise. Now, this is is fast-paced. Right. Fits fine on the album. But it's not a very good song. Yeah, it, it it's kind of generic. It start the drums kind of sound like "Bang Your Head Again." It, it, the the intro there, it's straight ahead. Yeah, you better get yourself running. I got a hurricane coming. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Although although one line that I did write down that I do love is, "You think it's easy being this sleazy? That is <laughs> that is hard work." And so good for you for. For doing yes. that. Well done, Kevin. We're all so proud of you. <laughs> Look, they, they play it well, and Frankie has a flourish at the end that I mm-hmm. really think is kind of cool. But Dubrow is just a clown on this song to me, man. <laughs> I mean, like, that's a clown question, bro. Like, that's clown singing, bro. I mean, his, his lyrics are so dumb and bad. <laughs> and then he executes them, I guess, the way he has to. I, I guess this appealed to some people, but. This has B-side written all over it to me. Yeah, and and I think, yeah, I think this is one of those songs that you could probably you're listening to it just to hear the music. Like you're like you're right. The drum flourish at the near the end of it is great, but the lyrics are just kind of what makes it not an instrumental. I guess like you're not really listening to it to say, oh, this is deep. Yeah, it's just a guy singing words that fit into the song that rhyme. And so it that's about the that's about as deep as that gets. That's it. That's it. You know, not not real memorable. Now, eighth song or third on the second side, Battle Axe. This is a guitar solo Mm -hmm. for Carlos Cavazo. I gotta believe, you know, it's not exactly eruption, but is it kind of trying to be that a little bit? Correct. Yeah. And I hear a little bit of Ace Fraley in there. I hit a little bit of Eddie Van Halen and then Carlos. It's it's kind of cool. I mean, I like a good guitar solo, and it's it's short. It's what's minute forty seconds or something like yeah. that. I, to me, the real highlight is that Dubrow's not singing on it. <laughs> <laughs> it it doesn't ever get over overwhelming. It he never it, it it sounds like there's a little bit maybe of classical mm-hmm. 
in the classical influence in the middle there again maybe trying to be like randy i don't know his i mean what i wrote down is the tone sounds good and he's got a good feel it never gets he knows how to play it fast and then bring it down you know it's not he's not just noodling for a minute and 38 right it's, and I, I think I would have liked it better had they had it been a true instrumental with, you know, maybe you put a little bass, a little guitar in there, kind of like an eruption where, you know, at the well, at the beginning with the drums. Mm-hmm. It, but it's it's nice. It's a nice change of pace. And it's nice that they kept it very short. I don't want to hear four and a half minutes of this. Yeah, it, it's not incredible. It, it's good, and uh, it gives yeah. Carlos a little time to shine, and I'm, I'm right. all for that. And it gives Dubrow a chance to go do a line or whatever he's going to go do. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's not ruining it. <laughs> but he obviously, Carlos wrote that. Uh, the last two are Dubrow solo-penned tracks. Let's get crazy. Okay, well, that's you know that's that sounds like a heavy metal or a hard rock song to me, right? Let's get right. crazy. And what do we start with? A big riff and a big mm-hmm. yell from Dubrow. Have we heard that before on this record? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. We, we hear it about every song, dude. Now, the other nice thing at the beginning of this is the gong. And is that one of those like, hey, fellas, I bought this thing. And so I really (laughs) think I need to use it at least one time. You know what, Frankie? Go ahead and just bang that thing. You're fine. (laughs) It's so simple. And I think it's supposed to be hookish. But it's it's a pretty simple song. Simple bass, Mm -hmm. you know, on there. Get down. Let's get crazy. Yeah, it's it's a simple. I mean, anybody could have written this, right? Correct. I, I really don't know what he uh what he was trying to get to on this one there's one lyric in here that uh, i don't know how closely tipper gore listened to this record but probably would have had a heart attack if she heard want to kiss your lips not the ones on your face <laughs> wow Gee, okay <laughs> uh yeah all righty this is this is right down the middle this is and i think maybe that's the magic of this record is that it's right down the middle. There is no, we're not trying to nuance anything here. No. It's it's for a very, I mean, Come On, Feel the Noise was a huge hit for MTV, but the rest of this, this is for 16, 17-year-old dudes. That's yeah. who this is for, to play in your room with the headphones on or driving around in the car that car. you wish was a Camaro, but probably wasn't, was probably right. a you know Chevy Nova or something on the cassette deck. That's what this is for. But then again, dude, when we're talking about we just did Frontiers within the last month, Frontiers right. chock full of hits sold about the same number in America as this mm-hmm. did. Shocking. Not to mention, a few months after this comes out, Kill 'em All by Metallica comes out. Now, the general public wasn't ready for, for Kill 'em All. They wasn't ready for right. Metallica yet, right? But 
that's where metal was going. So this is like, I don't know, it's like you're holding on to something that's just not there anymore. You know, it's like, I know crew were huge in the early 80s on the strip. And, you know, the strip was full of all sorts of people. And eventually you get Guns and Roses who were talking about not easy being sleazy. Yeah. They, they kind right. of perfected that. Correct. You know? So, uh, yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the weird conundrum about this record. It was so big in 83. Why did they, why weren't they big after this? And I think it was just all the, everything lined up correctly for them. And it just, they almost, they almost did well in spite of themselves because they did not go on to, I mean, the next record didn't match this at all. And then they kind of just fell apart. So it was a very brief moment in time that they hit on all cylinders. Well, it's because of Dubrow, I guess. I mean, he was very vocal and he would go out and trash other bands mm-hmm. he would trash the musical press he basically he trashed ozzy once rudy came back to the band pissed ozzy off so bad that that ozzy punched rudy in the face at the us festival like who, who rudy's the sweetest guy there is yeah. dude like even sharon isn't mad at rudy you know yeah. um but uh you know uh, it didn't make any sense and so yeah they all kind of say that condition critical which got very bad reviews. They all say it wasn't that bad, but because Kevin was out burning all these bridges and pissing everybody else. It just never had a chance. It never had a chance. And Mm. it was was a great, it was almost like a Spinal Tap kind of review. It's like, one review was like condition terminal. You know, like, (laughs) these guys are done, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, but I mean, look, this is is not an uncommon story where you have one album, one song, really. Mm hits the charts it's huge it defines a summer it's you know it's big for six months or whatever to a certain generation and then they're gone and then they never really do anything again and before we get into what happened to quiet riot later let's wrap it up with you know the 10th song of the record is thunderbird mm-hmm. which is something that kevin wrote about randy Rhodes, and i think he started writing it before randy died but mm-hmm. maybe he finished it after he died Okay. Which, you know, I mean, it was a tribute to him. You know, it's like fly away, you know, maybe we'll see you again. Someday you'll be back home, fly away to your new home across the bay. That mm-hmm. could be about, yeah, you're changing bands and you're moving on, that's fine. But then all of a sudden he's dead, it, it takes on different meaning. Starting off the song? Yes. I thought it was somebody else singing. Okay. Somebody who was good at singing? Well, yeah, I mean, he's not screaming and it just didn't sound like him because I've heard him in interviews and it didn't sound like, it's almost like he's whispering kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It just didn't sound like Dubrow. So I'm like, it must be somebody else, right? But then eventually there's choruses like, oh yeah, no, that's that's him. Yes. I don't know. Look, it's it's not a terrible way to end the album, to it's, be honest with you. This is another one of those where I wish they could have had somebody else because he, somebody else singing because right. that low part, he's just, it's not good. It's not, it's, it's just, ugh. he's trying to do something that he's not comfortable with that lower register. Right. It, it, it sounds bad. They should have had somebody else sing the beginning of this and then let him come in on the chorus yeah. where he's up higher. That sounds fine. The beginning of this is terrible. Right? They don't have anyone and, else. <laughs> that's well, that's, the that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem here is that he's trying to do everything and this just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. The song isn't bad. You know, it's about Randy. And so, you know, you kind of, that kind of takes it up a couple notches, but right. it, his singing at the beginning just takes me out of this thing. You can come back. You're flying free. You think you found everything that you need. Fly away, fly away, 
you're right. He's horrible. (laughs) Just so bad, you know. But it's not a terrible way to end the album, whereas half of the other songs on here would have been a terrible way to end the album because they're terrible. So, I mean, it's nice that they kind of have this tribute and then you kind of write off there. And that's fine. Something that surprised me was the song Danger Zone, I Mm. guess, was from this time. It was unreleased. It wasn't a B-side or anything like that. It didn't make the album. It's actually a pretty cool song. I mean, I think it's better than at least half the songs on the record. And it's something that they did play live quite a bit. So why didn't this make the record? Why wasn't it a B-side? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. The other thing I saw, thought that was strange on this one is, I mean, I guess it was finished, which is, but never released. But the chorus on it, it sounds really weird. It sounds like two guys yelling in the corner instead of that big chorus where you want to, everybody right. sings to. It's like, it just sounded weird. Like they kind of just put that in, like maybe you were going to do something else, but that was like a, you're just going to hold the place and then we'll put something big in there. I don't know. It's yeah, it's not a bad song compared to everything else. It just doesn't sound a hundred percent finished to me. Yeah, you're right. It, compared to the big chorus shadowlongs on Slickback by Cadillac or Come mm-hmm. Feel the Noise or Mental Health, it does sound a little odd. Like maybe somebody else was singing or something like that. Right. And maybe Chuck Wright sang on it because he did some backing vocals on Condition Critical. I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's weird to me that they didn't include it somewhere and it was mm. kind of just out in the ether there for the longest time but you can hear it and i encourage people to do so but yeah the condition critical comes out the next year 1984 like we, we're not waiting like we're getting you right back out there right right and you know again kevin dubrow writes at least half of the songs maybe more on his own there's a little bit that he he works with carlos on a few songs frankie co-wrote Condition Critical, Rudy co-wrote Scream and Shout with them, and obviously Mama, We're All Crazy Now, was Naughty and Jim again, and that was their big hit. But, you know, I think the video was fine, and Party All Night had a bit of a video Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of fun, but I I think people were past it. Like, you know, these these guys really aren't that good, and the (laughs) industry's like, Kevin Bros just not cool. He kind of sucks. He's just kind (laughs) of a mouthy asshole. It did go up to number 15, in the U.S. and it did sell over a million copies, so it went platinum. But oh, after oh. you know selling ten million worldwide, six million in the U.S. and a top five hit, to have one million U.S. you know it's 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 definitely a a letdown. Right, right. Which which I mean that's always I mean even we were talking about Frontiers that was a that was a what would have been a letdown from Escape. It's always going to happen when you have that one big one. But yeah, to to drop off that much. And to have somebody who does not obviously doesn't want to play the game and just wants to be an ass all the time, you just you can't. Yeah, you can't yeah. do that. Musician viewer J.D. Considine wrote simply, "Prognosis terminal." <laughs> not condition critical. <laughs> prognosis terminal. Well, and the, I think the other sucks. problem too is you know by this point in time, and then moving forward, you had guys who were in this same vein, but could write way better songs. Right. So then it's like, we don't even really need you anymore. And thank you for showing us the way. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it's yeah. not even close, you know. And then by the time QR3 came out in 86, I didn't know it came out. I mean, you know, I, right. I had no idea. And it didn't make any kind of a dent anywhere, and it's not very well regarded. And and then I think Chuck Wright was kind of back in, you know, the band. Like, mm-hmm. Rudy had split at this point. I don't know, was he already in Whitesnake? I don't know. He was doing other stuff. So they had their moment in the in the sun, and then it kind of uh, it kind of ended. And, and they tried it for a while uh, into the '90s. Then they kind of broke up for a while. Then they got the classic band back together again. But Kevin didn't live super long. The interesting thing I heard was that they were paid to play the after party by Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson was doing big shows at the time, and he's going to have an after party, so he pays Quiet Riot to play his after party. I'm like, hmm. ooh, how the mighty have fallen, dude. <laughs> My goodness gracious. But you didn't say no. No, because, you know, they probably paid. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I mean, look, Frankie, again, the, the trip that I met Carlos Cavazzo on, I basically bumped into Frankie at LAX and walked past him. I said, hey, Frankie, hey. Hmm. Hey, Metal Man. He's like, hey, hey, dude, hey. Because he was on the phone. He's like, yeah, dude, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, get out of my face. Uh, but, uh, no, he, he's a super nice guy. But he, he kept Quiet Riot alive. And, mm-hmm. you know, he got his wife or his fiance at the time to kind of help fund a documentary of them at the time, like in the mid-2015, 2016 era, where he decided he wasn't going to continue Quiet Riot after Kevin died. But then he said, okay, this is probably my best shot to kind of continue to work. So... He went to Kevin's mom, asked her for permission to continue. She granted it to him. And then they kind of went about trying to find a singer. Just like all these bands from the 80s, whether it's Judas Priest or Journey or whoever it is, you, you know, you, you got to look on YouTube and you got to try to get guys. And they got a guy who was not bad. He was a house painter most of the time, but he had not a bad voice. And so they show him doing flyaway gigs and doing state fair gigs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But the guy just had a... He would drink maybe a little bit too much, and he would mess up the lyrics, and they showed him at a show, he's flubbing, come on, feel the noise. And it's like, and after the show, Frankie's yelling, I'm like, what the fuck did I tell you? There's one song you can't fuck up that you have to get right every night. It's come on, feel the noise, all right? You want to fuck up Slick Black, Clad like, no one's going to know. You can't fuck up, you know, and so he didn't last very much longer. <laughs> but they, they kind of just kept it going, kept it going, and so... That's what happens when you have one huge hit. Mm. You know, you keep it together enough, you know, as far as your health goes, you can keep going. But Kevin Dubrow died, and he died partying. And he mm-hmm. was not in bad shape. He was still pretty ripped, still banging out girls half of his age. They say it was a cocaine overdose, but from what I understand, it's not like he had a ton of cocaine in the system. He had, he had a little bit of alcohol. He had a little bit of cocaine. I think he had some painkillers. Maybe he has a back issue or a knee issue or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that little mix... In the fifties, yeah, put him out. Yeah, and 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 you're right. I th- I remember uh, right before he died, thinking that's or, or when he died, thinking that same thing. I mean, like, yeah, he seemed like he was in really good shape. Mm-hmm. He seemed like he could still sing and the whole yeah. the whole deal. So yeah, I guess it's just it's unfortunate, but yeah, your body can only handle so much, and when you push it over, it's just that's it. And that's kind of the way his brother described it. His brother is a big time plastic surgeon in in Los Angeles. I mean. B.I.G. time, like to the uh-huh. stars. And he's been on lots of reality TV shows like on E! with like, you know, showing some of the work he does and stuff like that. Plus, I think his wife got on one of those real house horse shows or whatever because, you know, they probably live a very, very good life. But like he went to Yale and then got his medical degree at UCLA, like smart guy. And Kevin wasn't dumb. He was mm. savvy about a lot of things. It's just he couldn't 
get out of his own way. He, he couldn't help himself as much as he thought he could. And I think that's part of the problem is you have this big hit record and then you go and play that Us Festival. And right. I think they were, I don't think they were headliners, but they were they were on the rock day. I mean, that's that whole thing. I mean, you just have to think to yourself, okay, this is it. I've made it now. I'm, now I am a rock star. It's only going to get bigger from here. And then, yeah, your mouth kind of gets in the way. Hey, you know, it's just me being me. Well, you do have to play the game and... When that second one doesn't follow up like the first one, now we've got a problem. That's right. Yeah. And that's probably going to happen to you one day, Jackson, because I'm going to run my mouth. I'm going to say something stupid. Oh, we have this nice boy. podcast that we like to do. We're oh, meeting boy. people from all over the world and <laughs> interviewing some of our heroes. And it's like, it's going to go away. What happened? Well, Max said something stupid one day and it was all over. <laughs> Well, that's our take on Quiet Riot's 1983 juggernaut, Metal Health, which was huge, guys. It was the first ever album to go to number one of the heavy metal genre in the United States of America. And I know for some fans out there, it sounds like, Mac, you didn't really like that one. And I don't know. Look, I mean, I love the riffs. I love the individuals in Quiet Riot as people and as musicians. And someone who thinks that heavy metal is overlooked or marginalized by the people who run the music industry are most music fans. Because I don't think they appreciate the musicianship of what most metal bands can do. I don't appreciate, I don't think they understand the lyrics that some of them can bring to the table. Like an Iron Maiden. Like, what can they do? As far as playing their instruments goes, what kind of stories do they tell? I think it uplifts the entire genre. And while some of the riffs on this Quiet Riot album were pretty cool, the musicianship, I especially think Frankie Benali was top-notch on this thing. It's just their lyrics are so sophomoric. It's so, I mean, if people are going to find a reason to not like heavy metal, they can point to this and say, look at this. Look how poor this is, you know. Now, look, 1983, I'm 10 years old. It's fun. The song, Come On, Feel The Noise, though it was a cover, was huge. It's a lot of fun. You can scream to it. You can put your fist in the air. You can jam it while you're driving in the car. It's a fun song. It's not Quiet Riot's song, right? It's not a Holder's song. But look, it was a moment in time. And after that, you didn't hear a whole lot from Quiet Riot anymore. And I think that we know why for the most part. But they have a special little place in the history of rock and roll and a special little place in our heart. And that's why we, out the 40th anniversary of Metal Health, decided to review that record. So we want to know from you, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You let us know. You can email us, uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. We're on Instagram as well. We're on YouTube. We might be on Facebook. I'm not really sure. There's a lot of things up in the air that I'm not really sure of these days, guys. So I just hope everyone's doing well out there. We really appreciate you listening to the show. And if you're doing it, hey, if you're downloading and subscribing, do us a favor, yeah? If you got a minute, give us a positive review wherever you get your podcast. It just helps us find more and more rock and roll fans like you, helps us grow the show. Special thanks, as always, to Pantheon Pods. You can go to pantheonpodcast.com to check out the many, many fantastic shows on Pantheon. Thanks, as always, to rarevinyl.com, where if you use the code podcast, you can save 10% off your orders, and they ship all over the world. So if you're looking for some rare Quiet Riot stuff, maybe, just maybe, You'll be able to find it at rarevinyl.com, and you might as well use the code PODCAST to save yourself 10%. I'm not sure what's coming next week, folks. 
I know that we've got a lot of fun things lined up and we've recorded some stuff, but some stuff we're going to back burner and some stuff we're going to do new and bring it up to the front and get it out to you quicker. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen. You are going to have to tune in to find out. But until then, to all of you rockers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.